Good morning, Second Church Home. We're really glad to be with you all. Really glad, actually. Not glad for this quite in my face. Is that okay, brother? Okay, you don't want to record this. It's only good once. You don't need to replay it again. Turn, if you would, to the book of Habakkuk. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you, sir. I didn't want to break it. Appreciate it. Habakkuk. Uh, the message this morning is something I've done a few times over the years, probably uh, first time 10 or so years ago. It's, it's always revamped. Um, I like Habakkuk. Um, Habakkuk is very uh, pertinent to life in a fallen world. Uh, we'll be looking at a few verses near the end of chapter 3. But before we get there, let me just discuss the title, the different titles I've given this text the few times that I've preached it. Um, the first time I did it was joy in the midst of shaking, which is driven from the words in the text, that we can, as believers, have joy even though life is difficult and shakes us up. And then I've kind of fooled around with it and said, well, joy in the midst of shaking, fear and faith. It's, it's fear and faith. That's the Christian life. And it is indeed fearful and requiring faith. And then I've entitled it The Response of Faith in the Midst of Fear. They all work. You'll see it. It's just all over. Dear ones, the Bible speaks often of God's people as being shaken. Life shakes us. And yet we can still be joyful even while we're in the midst of this shaking. And we can even be confident despite circumstances that often are very difficult it's been a strange 18 months, hasn't it? Did you ever think you'd live to see it? America doing the things that America is doing. It's a crazy day we live in. We're being shaken, but we can still be confident. You know, God, as you recall in the book of Job, he allowed Satan to strip away from Job every single thing that he held dear. And do you recall his response these are powerful words from our brother. We're going to meet him one day. And that's something. We're going to meet Job. And Job said these words, and they've echoed down through the millennia, and they've landed in our laps this morning once more. After he lost every single thing of value that he held dear, he said, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How are we doing here, brothers and sisters, at Ranch View? How's it going for you this morning? Hopefully, well. This is a theme that's all over God's word. Remember Peter. The adjective describing his count is he rejoiced in, in his and his audience's salvation, but he recognized even in the middle of his being feeling rejoiceful. Is that a word, Roman? Is it rejoiceful? Is that a word? In the midst of his rejoicing. Okay, thank you. Thank you. I've added to the English language. Everybody else does. Why not me? He's rejoicing, though, even knowing that he's going to be grieved by various trials. And even in the knowledge that these trials were coming and they'd be great, they couldn't suppress his inexpressible joy in the opening chapter of Peter. James tells us that trials for a believer, all these trials that we face as believers, must be wed to the pure joy. That's what it says in the text. Pure joy. There's no delusion of this joy. It's it's a superlative joy, 
heavy and weighty, the pure joy of realizing that God, even in the middle of the trials, develops a perseverance that builds maturity in the faith. We're being matured, dear ones, in our present day too. The psalmist writes in 119, verse 67, writing there that before his affliction, he had been found going astray, astray from the Lord. And then he says that his season of difficulty, all those things that happened to him, whatever they were, they were for his good. And then he ended up producing this posture, this mindset, this direction of his feet where he ran towards the unfailing love of God to receive his comfort. How are we doing here in our affliction? Are we running to God for comfort? Trust we are. Jesus told the church at Laodicea that those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Revelation 3 verse 19. If you're feeling the divine whack upside the head, God is loving you. He's trying to get your attention. Peter tells us his thorn in the flesh drove him to God's all-sufficient grace. In 1 Corinthians 12. Basically saying, you feel undone? Good. Go to the one who's never undone, who will give you what you need to be made whole again. This theme is all over. Romans. Not a trite little platitude, friends. Romans 8. For those who love God, all things work together for good. That is not a spiritual band-aid. That is not a just hear this and be well. It's true. And this morning I have one that's similar in venue, in genre, from Habakkuk, who displays for us joy in the midst of a most incredible shaking. Let me give you some quick background to our brother Habakkuk, God's minor prophet. Setting the stage, you may recall Israel, nation state at the time of writing, had been overrun by the Assyrians for a century, losing their freedom in 721 BC. Game over for these stiff-necked Israelites. And now her equally stiff-necked, rebellious, idolatrous little sister Judah is facing an imminent invasion by the Babylonians. And history records for us her fall in 587 B.C. So we'll blow through the book real quick. Chapter 1 of our book. God tells his prophet, I'm paraphrasing, Invasion is coming. It's coming because you are corrupt and your behavior is scandalous. You're rebels to the bone. You've denied me my worship, and now I will judge you by, quote, a people more wicked than you are. Chapter 1, verse 13. You're toast, God says. It's coming. Chapter 2. List for us what our theologian friends call a series of woe oracles. Woe oracles. Doom and gloom. Destruction. Death. Judgments proclaimed against specific sins. Sins of which both Judah and the text reveals even her coming punishers are all guilty of. But God's going to get Judah first. He'll get the punishers later. What are these things they're guilty of? Greed. Materialism. Selfishness, self-sufficiency, violence, and perversity of every stripe. It's in the text. Idolatry being the overarching sin. 
God states both Judah and her invaders will be punished for their rejection of him, the chief good. And their attempts to find satisfaction in the worship of inanimate idols of their own making is ridiculous and foolish. And he calls them out for it. Instead of acknowledging the Lord in reverent silence and awe, they just loudly, consistently rejected him with an insincere and vain worship. So they're in big trouble. Chapter 3, the prophet prays. In his prayer, the prophet remembers God's marvelous works and seasons past, the saving deeds undertaken for his people and his loving kindness. He remembers God's sovereign control over the word that he alone has made and at the end of this prayer, where we're going to this morning, we get a very clear sense, a, a clear view of our prophet's humanity, that he's like you and me. And he's got a couple things cooking for him. He's got concern for the future, what's coming, and yet he has a great confidence in his Lord. They're linked closely. And he realizes, yep, Babylonians on their way. And as he considers that coming reality, the text says his body trembles and his lips quiver. He's scared. Let's put ourselves, try to place ourselves in the middle of a similar situation. What if you and I were to learn that tomorrow there would arrive at our shores an evil horde of Isis, or they're kissing first cousins, the Taliban. And God had already told us that we're going to lose, that they're going to dominate us, that they're going to subjugate our culture, they're going to waste the place, and there's a new season upon us. How would we respond? Death's coming. Destruction's coming. Torture. Deprivation of every kind. It's here. Would your spirit be crushed? Would mine? Would we simply roll over and hope the end came quickly? Or worse, much worse, would we just wait in despair, deny God, deny the reality of God's goodness? Think about it. Friends, there's some earthly realities that we would do well to remember even right now. Thanks be to God, Isis is not coming to our shores tomorrow, nor their kissing first cousins, the Taliban. We're glad for that. But our world has already been invaded by forces of evil as terrifying and destructive as were the Babylonians and their modern-day counterparts. Probably even more so do we face these evils. The fall has allowed the entrance of numerous plagues upon mankind. We would have to be blind to have missed them and their scope. Many things, many faces that reflect the reality of a cursed creation. Lies and deceptions, factions and anger and ignorance and war and unrest and abortion and euthanasia and immorality and perversion of every kind. We have disease, we have pestilence, greed, selfishness, poverty, suffering. All these things are all around us, right? It's everywhere. The ground indeed is cursed. 
And we produce what we need from it by the sweat of our brow. And we're inflicted and afflicted in many ways by false worldviews that enslave and corrupt and cripple and kill. They're all around us. There's lies of every size and shape. Despair and hopelessness is, is a lot of many in our world. We don't have it bad here, by the way, just as an aside. Where would you rather go than here, especially you blessed to live in San Diego? Listen, you want a foretaste of heaven? It's right here. That's why we come here for all of our behavior. It's great here. It's lovely here. Stop your whining. But a lot of people do despair and don't have much hope. And all of us have our seasons of struggle, even as faithful followers of Christ living in the reality of his promises. So you've been here, I think, rock solid in theology, yet sometimes feeling weak in your flesh. I'm there sometimes. At times we're a bit overwhelmed by our circumstances, our troubles. And sometimes those troubles are deep. And they, they hit us. Guess what? Welcome to the life of faith. Welcome to the reality of being in between the already and not yet. This is the church, this is the church militant, waiting to be called the church triumphant. It's where we live, it's faith. So Habakkuk, our brother this morning, he's aware that horrors are coming by the hand of the Babylonians. God's told him it's true, there's no avoiding it, I've sent them, it's my plan, deal with it, and keep your eyes focused on me, because I'll sustain you. But boy, his body trembles. The posture of his spirit is fear. But yet, even in the midst of that, he models to us a confident rejoicing and joy in what the text says is the God of my salvation. If I could paraphrase that, this is the God of sure promises. The God who is says A and delivers on A, and says B and delivers on that too, and everything he says he'll do, he does it perfectly. Habakkuk is telling us, guess what, guys? Fellow sufferers, fellow pilgrims, there can be joy in adversity, peace even in the midst of fear. Yes, the Jordan is crossed with difficulty, but the Lord always brings his own safely to heaven's shore. God is commonly about that business of carrying his people through their seasons of shaking and trembling. So I'm going to work through three short verses near the end. We'll see two basic situations. The beginning of fear and an ending of faith. So beginning with fear and an end of faith. And the faith is even there in the midst of the fear. Verse 16, Habakkuk 3 prophet writes, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. This next one is really something. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Interesting. It's intense. He's very afraid. His body is trembling. His lips quiver. Rottenness enters his bones. His legs tremble beneath him. 
I used to feel that way when I was a kid. Fourth grade. We had a field across from the street from the house my parents rented. And the rains would come there in NorCal and Fremont, and the grass would grow, and we'd dig forts, tunnels, and the grass, you could just pull, you'd be like this tall, and you'd grab a handful, and the mud would stick to the roots, and you'd pack that mud up good, and you had weapons. Boom! And we'd throw them at each other, and we had a great time doing that until Billy Clary and his henchmen came upon the scene. And they were the Taliban of my fourth grade experience. And they were mean, and they were nasty, and they were bigger, and they were faster. And we always hoped we'd see them before they got too close because they could outrun us. And we just head back across the street to home as soon as we saw them because they always bullied us. Rottenness would enter into my bones when I saw these guys. I felt a real fear when I saw him, I felt real powerless. I was almost paralyzed. It was like a deer in the headlights thing, you know, and sometimes you catch a rabbit at night, you know, and the headlights are going down, and the rabbit's like, which way do I go? Do I go here? Do I go here? You know, and you know what they usually do, because we see them the next morning. They're a little thinner. But, but that's, that's really how I, I would feel, and, and this is how the prophet's feeling, I think. He had no place to run to like I did as a kid. God said, they're going to take over the whole country. There's no place to hide. No escape. The sure hand of mighty God's judgment was going to grab him and shake him in a big, terrifying, most uncomfortable fashion. It's going to happen. And he's God's prophet, and he knew it. But this is really key. I want you to hang on to this. If you forget everything else that's said this morning, hang on to this. Key thought. Note, as you look at these words in the text before you, note that while his body responded to the situation with the visible quaking and shaking, his mind then did something very helpful for his soul. What was it? It's right there in verse 16. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. I will quietly wait. Friends, his mind had been prepared by prayer. His soul was informed by God's promises. He was also strengthened in the remembrance of past mercies and deliverances from his God. And so as a result, he was encouraged in the knowledge that the God he served was Always good, always right, always about what chapter 3, verse 13 says, always about the salvation of his people. Indeed, yes, the physical circumstances looming before him were very troubling and, and very weighty. And, but yes, too, and more importantly, yes, too, the spiritual realities were comforting and encouraging and it allowed a perspective in the midst of a very great trial. How are we doing here? There's a lot of people here this morning. You've grown since the last time we came. There's some trials here, I'm confident. 
How are you doing? Is Habakkuk maybe beginning to encourage you just a wee bit, I hope? Habakkuk had learned from experience not to allow the anxiety of the immediate to quickly overwhelm him from his eternal perspective. Sure, yes, it isn't fun. And sure, in his mortality, his humanity, he's struggling. Text is pretty clear. The guy's shaking in his boots. He's fighting his fear. He's fighting his fear with God's given available grace to overcome the temptation to be overwhelmed by that fear. And he's having great success. Look at verses 17 and 18. This is the faith. This is our second point, the faith. Talk about the fear. Here's the faith. Here's how the faith deals with our fear. And we have need for this, friends. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fall, fail rather, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. It's his faith. Habakkuk doesn't find his perspective by sticking his head in the sand and pretending that the short term is going to be just fine or maybe it won't happen. God told him, it's coming. They're on their way. And they're cruel and they're bloodthirsty. They're going to make the fertile land of Judah one of desolation. This thriving agricultural economy is about to be ruined. It's going to be trampled all over. The land is going to be wasted. Everyone there is going to become intimately acquainted with the woes of ruin and poverty and hunger and deprivation, for sure. What was once a beautiful country will be overwhelmed and transformed into a not beautiful country and Every citizen soon to be enrolled in a crash course of accelerated suffering. It's, it's on the way. And yet, what does he say? Yet, quote, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Amazing. Someone who doesn't trust the Lord would be tempted to say something like this. You know that guy Habakkuk? He's a nut job. Clearly, he doesn't understand what's coming. He's not at all connected to reality. He should be singing the blues in a big, big way, praising his God. How ridiculous. Doesn't look like his God is doing too much for him right now. Right? How is, Abel, how is Habakkuk able to say what, he's, what he does say in verse 18? Reading, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. How does he do this? Let me try to attempt an explanation. You know, as do I, the body is very clear that we have bodies of flesh. We're made of the dust of the earth. It's a good place to start. Good place to reflect upon. Even an unbeliever recognizes the truth that at death, their bodies will be placed in the ground. They will slowly disintegrate and return to the dust. And you know what? Good theology tells us that the process of disintegration began at the first mouthful of air we ever got. 
We were born dying, and we're still dying. Yes, our bodies live. Yes, our bodies have needs that are physical and real. They need, they need to be met in order to keep living. We need food and drink and clothing and shelter, and that's common to every living creature upon the earth. We know that to be true. So the sustenance of these needs, according to the prophet, a lot of it's going to be destroyed. And despite that soon-to-come most terrible reality for some strange, inexplicable reason, Habakkuk's posture is one of rejoicing with joy. And again, the strong temptation is send that man immediately to the psych ward. Because the needs aren't going to be met anymore when the invaders come. I think our Lord Jesus has a few answers that might clear things up for us a bit. Might help us to understand Habakkuk's strange response of calm in the face of the coming storm. No one more qualified to address our needs than the one who made us, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's abundantly aware that we have spiritual needs. What he really says about that is that we need him. Habakkuk had him in anticipation. What separates man from the beasts of the earth is the fact that man is in possession of what the Bible calls a soul. Man is acquainted with spiritual realities that the beasts of the earth are not. We ponder, we think, we wonder, we consider about what things are like beyond us, our present experience. Things like what happens when we die? Where will we go? What will we do? Will we do anything at all? Think about this stuff. Is there really a God and does he really care about us? Beasts of the earth don't think such things. They're not mentally equipped to practice such reflections. People are not beasts. Jesus knows us. He made us. He knows what we need. He knows what our real needs are. And he meets them perfectly. Recall the account of our Lord being tempted by the devil in Matthew 4. There the devil tries to entice our Lord into using his divine powers to turn stones into bread to assuage his hunger following a 40-day fast. It's a pretty strong temptation. And Jesus holds a line, and he responds to the devil in this way. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Matthew 4.4. 4. In, in John 4, verse 32, we read of Jesus' response to disciples, and where they're, they're pleading for him to eat some food, and then he responds as kind of a slap. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Code talk. I don't need your food. You need me. And then he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 4, verse 34. So Jesus speaks of the spiritual need, not of the physical nourishment in that text. And that nourishment, that spiritual nourishment, that feeding that you and I need in the face of adversity is secured by knowing and pleasing our Father in heaven, by trusting him and his promises. Because he never said heaven was here. And we know this to be true from our own common experience. Our needs are best satisfied as we walk with God and feel his pleasure on our lives. Irrespective of circumstances. The circumstances are always going to be filled with some level of difficulty as long as we breathe here in this place. You can just take it to the bank. It's a given. 
Jesus said some incredible things to the crowds that were flocking around him in that account we read about in John 6. And all that crowd really wanted was another free meal, as you know, one more miracle of food to satisfy their physical hunger, and Jesus wanted to give them something for their soul. He tells them something that really shocks them, I think, and surprises them. Probably not the response they expected. And he tells them in verse 35 of John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's calling them to faith. That's what he's doing. Now, was Jesus really saying then that by application, we would never physically hunger or thirst again if we simply believe in him? Of course not. I enjoyed my dinner last night, and you probably did too. But Jesus' primary, most genuine concern was for the health of lost and sick souls who live in a world of adversity and difficulty, who are surrounded by sinners. People want to take their stuff, take their honor, take their reputation. This is the world we live in, a world of lies. And only the bread of life can satisfy our souls. And you and I know that, we who know Christ. Only Christ can satisfy our deepest longings. Only Christ can give us a strong backbeat to carry us through the current adversity. Great fun being on bed rest, huh, Tanya? Prayed for you this morning. Here you are. Ba-boom. Answer to prayer. It's a trial. It's tough. And some of you are in a trial like that. Do we have confidence in the promise of God irrespective of the trials? I hope we do. Habakkuk did. We need things. God provides for them. But what we really truly need is that that supports the life of the soul. The bodies that you and I occupy, they are temporary. They are in an ongoing process of death, but not so the soul. The soul lives for, by the way, everybody lives forever. Did you know that? That's good theology. Those who live in hell forever outside of the grace of Christ would wish, would love for the annihilationist theology to be true. If only I didn't have to experience this anymore. Heaven and hell are two very real places. The soul that goes to heaven has found its life in the promises of Christ. That is the only place for life. And I'll tell you, friends, when you have eternal life in Christ and you feel the reality of that, of that life in Christ, your external circumstances start to not matter near as much. They just kind of fall away. Hard sometimes, but not as important. When we read the accounts of the martyrs who readily embraced the flames that looked at their limbs as they gave testimony to their faith, as they would not compromise the truth of God's word. Many who were there on the scene said they were rejoicing in the privilege to give such a testimony, even of allowing their bodies to be burned at the stake. Give me the Babylonians. That stake sounds tough. And we marvel and we go, how could they do that? How could they have a spirit like that? 
Same way Habakkuk could, same way you and I can. They knew, we know, the God of our salvation. We know him. We know he's good. We know he delivers on his promises. And in that relationship of faith, you, I, Habakkuk, the martyrs, all who have trusted Christ, all of God's people of every age can take joy even while in the very middle of a very extreme shaking. We're all going to have it happen to us. Joy is one of those words. We call it a superlative. Joy isn't happy. Joy isn't, I feel good today. Joy is one of those high-level Mount Everest emotions. And for the Christian, our joy at that level is rooted in the goodness of Christ to you personally. You can be joyful. You know your heart. You know what you've done. You know what you're capable of. You know what you've been forgiven of. You know what you've been prevented from. You know that the whole weight of debt has been carried by Christ, and you carry none of it at all. It's all on him. It's all of grace. It's just wonderful. It produces joy. Friends, when the God of the universe grants to his own an understanding that he alone is the God of salvation and offers that salvation personally to his own, the conclusion should be something like this, if we really understand it at all. It just can't get any better. And no thing and no event in the whole of my experience in this big wide world can alter that and thwart that. Am I being ridiculous? I don't think so. Not a Babylonian invasion, nor ISIS, nor an economic meltdown, nor even the deconstruction of our nation's constitution, nor the abysmal political candidates and rulers God has seen fit to give us, nor a cancer, nor potential job loss, nor any other unpleasant situation or circumstance should rob us of our joy if we have the Lord Jesus Christ reigning in our hearts. Nothing. Because when the king of the universe has saved us, we stay saved. And we know from the teaching of Scripture that our best life yet is not here, but will be there and with him and his gathered saints, and that eternally and evermore so. We should be joyful. We should be joyful. It shouldn't really matter that much to us what happens here. What should really matter to us here is that we remain faithful. We do what we're called to do. We live the reality of our salvation. A salvation that's rooted in the goodness and the forgiveness of God offered to us in the person of, of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who paid our price. There's, there's nothing better that could ever happen to us. There's nothing better that will ever happen to us again. That we close with Christ and we know him and who he is. The bread of life. It really satisfies us. Fills us with hope and confidence. To know forgiveness now in this life is no forgiveness in the life to come. But you must know it in this life. So I think we begin to understand a bit more clearly how Habakkuk can respond in the ways that he did. And I hope his words are an encouragement to our souls. 
in the midst of our own Babylonian invasion. Look at verse 19 as we begin to close. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This is what faith does for us. It's, it's this attitude, this, this persona, this inner demeanor that makes us confident and, and chipper and energetic and joyful. Even when life's rocking us. Habakkuk knows that his God will one day give him sure footing and ultimate safety even while he navigates some of life's most difficult terrain. There's deep ditches he's walking around. There's potholes, sinkholes, La Brea tar pits. Call it what you want. There's all this kind of stuff that's seeking to trip him up, and he knows God's going to take him through. He's going to walk the high places. And in those high places, at the end, the prophet knows he'll look down in victory and security because God will allow him to arrive there. You'll allow him to make it. God will have cared for him as he promised, as only God can. Habakkuk believes these things because he's in the faith. The faith has secured him. And note now the ending of our text. A little bit of an obscure few words, but I, I think it's pertinent. I want to make a couple comments. To the choir master with stringed instruments, worship leader, this should speak to you. Consider these last words of our text. From my vantage point, I hope from yours too, I think it's reasonable to assume it appears that Habakkuk intended that to be a prayer to be sung by the people. Let's sing about these joyful realities together. In other words, we need to come together and do these things, right? Let's come together. There's an opportunity for them all to corporately assemble and beseech the Lord for his available grace in light of the coming circumstances, the difficulties. And that same reason is why we too gather ourselves to confess our ongoing need for God's help in the living out of our own lives and our own immediate circumstances. So may God be ever pleased to help you and I and all the saints spread all around this wonderful world to help us in our distresses and help us to keep our eyes focused on his promises as this temporal life indeed does and will shake us up. Amen? Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we run to you. You are the one true God who alone has the power and the ability to exchange our tears and our fears and our worries for your joy your given confidence, and your given security. Father, for any here this morning whose knees are knocking, whose lips tremble, whose bones feel rottenness, Lord, would you give them grace to run to the Lord Jesus who will carry their burdens and grant them joy even in the midst of the shaking of this short life. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.